0: Welcome to the Frontline Gastroenterology Podcast, based on the review "Diagnosis and Management of Lynch Syndrome" published online in June 2022. I'm Dr. Jenny Clough, Trainee Associate Editor at Frontline Gastroenterology, and IBD Research Fellow at Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital in London. I extend a very warm welcome to Dr. Kevin Monaghan, Consultant Gastroenterologist at St Mark's Hospital and Honorary Senior Clinical Lecturer at Imperial College London. He completed a PhD at Cancer Research UK and leads a cancer genetics clinic. Dr. Monahan authored this review for frontline gastroenterology together with Dr. Penelope Edwards, an oncologist working at the Royal Marsden Hospital. To start with Dr. Monahan, could you tell us about your research journey and how you came to care for patients with hereditary cancer syndromes?
1: Thank you, Jenny. I trained in Ireland and I, uh, during my medical training, did a BSc in biochemistry. The subject of the BSc was a family with multiple cancers and polyps and that's what really got me interested in this area and then I went on a tangent and uh, did an MSc in genetics and then uh, decided to come back and finish medicine and actually realised that the UK is quite a good place to come work, to, to work in a genomic medicine but so I left Ireland and um, also felt like I wanted to do something which wasn't just about diagnostics, but also interventional and gastroenterology, something that um, has always felt right to me, and the uh, best decision I have made. It's a privilege to work in this specialty, and I um, was always, always interested in this area of cancer genetics. I think the thing about Lynch syndrome is that it isn't just about diagnostics. If you know someone has Lynch syndrome, there's a huge amount that you can do to change their outcomes. I think that we're, we are, as a specialty, in a good position to do that in terms of cancer prevention and advising about how we can personalise people who have diagnosed diagnosis of cancer and managing families. Um, so it uh, definitely felt like the right fit from, for me personally.
0: Brilliant. Thank you. Really interesting to hear about your personal journey. Thank you. Can you tell me what the prevalence of Lynch syndrome is and can you explain the genetic changes which are detectable in Lynch syndrome patients?
1: Lynch syndrome is uh, not a rare disease. In fact, it's relatively common. If you look at some of the data that's been published from the UK Biobank of Healthy Adults, about 1 in 400 people who are healthy adults have Lynch syndrome. And uh, that's similar to other data that's been published from population genetic studies in the US and elsewhere. So it's about 1 in 400, and it's something that we're, we're probably encountering people with Lynch syndrome all the time, but they don't know it, and you don't know it until you've diagnosed them. And in fact, one of the important issues is that we only know 1 in 20 people who have Lynch syndrome. And uh, there's a real focus on trying to improve diagnosis, uh, identify more patients so that they can avail of the preventative strategies that exists. Um, there's a national Lynch syndrome project, the goal of which is to allow people, wherever they're working, to offer genetic testing uh, for suspected Lynch syndrome without referring to a genetic service. So gastroenterologists can now offer a genetic test for people where there's a suspicion of Lynch syndrome. And um, if you're interested in knowing about that a bit more, then, then please get in touch. But there are actually a network of nurses and doctors around England now who are working in this area to try and improve diagnosis. Um, There are five different genes that can cause Lynch syndrome and these genes are involved in repairing DNA damage, the kind of DNA repair that normally happens every time a cell divides but in people with Lynch syndrome can become faulty and each of these uh, what are called mismatched DNA repair genes, each one is associated with a a different level of risk of of different cancers. So um, Highest risk of colorectal cancer, for example, is with people who have MLH1 and MSH2 genes which are abnormal or have, have what we call pathogenic variants. And those with other faulty genes, PMS2 and MSH6, have a considerably lower risk of colorectal cancer. But in pe- with MSH6, the risk of endometrial cancer is actually much higher than it is for the other genes. So uh, we're st- starting to tailor how we manage people with Lynch syndrome depending on which gene is implicated.
0: Thank you. In your review, you indicate that since 2017, all new diagnoses of colorectal cancer should undergo testing for mismatch repair deficiency. Is this something which should happen automatically or should we as gastroenterologists be specifically requesting this when we send biopsy samples?
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, So, NICE recommended in 2017 that all new colorectal cancer diagnoses undergo testing for Lynch syndrome and this is something that should be done Routinely and reflexly by pathologists once they identify an adenocarcinoma, so it's not something that should necessarily be requested. But what we know is that, unfortunately, only forty-one percent of patients in twenty nineteen were having any form of testing of this kind. Um, so there are there is significant variation around England, and as gastroenterologists, we have a role in ensuring that that uh, this pathway is working well, and we can speak to our pathologists. But it's the role of the pathologists to identify mismatch repair deficiency in the biopsies and if mismatch repair deficiency is diagnosed it doesn't represent a diagnosis of Lynch syndrome people still need to be counselled and undergo genetic testing which is usually a blood test and that is something that gastroenterologists can do in clinic. Um, Mostly patients who are eligible for testing are not even referred for testing and that's a consistent um, finding from around um, the UK Although there are lots of patients who would be eligible after the pathologist has done their test, then they're not referred. And so we need to be systematic about how we pick up and offer these patients genetic testing.
0: Can you tell us about the guidelines for colonoscopy surveillance in Lynch syndrome patients?
1: We published uh, BSG guidelines in 2020, around the same time as the polyp surveillance guidelines came out. We published the hereditary colorectal cancer guidelines. And so it's all detailed in there, but it's actually not too complicated people with Lynch syndrome should have a colonoscopy every two years. There's a nuance in that. People with the MLH1 or MSH2 type of Lynch syndrome should commence colonoscopy at age 25, and those with MSH6 and PMS2 should commence at age 35. But beyond that, they should carry on every two years until they're 75 years of age. Now, one of the big developments in this area is that in April of 2023, so next April, all colonoscopic surveillance should be offered to Lynch patients via the bowel cancer screening programme. So bowel cancer screening colonoscopists and the bowel cancer screening service will provide colonoscopic follow-up every two years to all patients with Lynch syndrome, although patients will have a choice if they have a relationship with a gastroenterologist or an endoscopist. Essentially, they will be offered that wherever they live in England, and that doesn't apply outside of England. Obviously, there are different. Uh, there are four nations in the UK, but um, that would be a big change, and that there's a lot of activity going on to deliver that, but uh, the rollout will be in April of next year.
0: That's great. Thanks for highlighting that change. Are there differences in typical morphology for patients with Lynch syndrome, and are there specific considerations for gastroenterologists performing surveillance procedures on this patient cohort?
1: Yes, it's, it's very important. Um, There is a higher prevalence of flat, very subtle, right-sided colonic lesions um, in people with Lynch syndrome. So in our population, about 40% of adenomas are flat lesions and more than half are proximal. Uh, And they're often very difficult to detect. So this requires ensuring the bowel preparation is really good and that, you know, obviously the cecum needs to be reached, of course, especially as... There are more cancers in the right side of the colon. We need to make sure that that the bowel preparation is good. Um, And it's also important that the colonoscopist who's performing the procedure takes their time to carefully examine the whole colon, especially the right side of the colon. We normally suggest that people take 15 minutes at least to extubate. They may consider a double pass extubation. I would recommend that uh, assistive devices are used. I always use an endocuff to flatten the folds in the colon. I I will usually attempt secal retroflexion to carefully examine the right side. Dye spray is not routinely recommended, but can be helpful, particularly in those people who have a lower uh, adenoma detection rate, but a good quality white light colonoscopy with careful examination on, on extubation. And the other thing that's really important is that people with Lynch may have 25 colonoscopies over their lifetime, Non attendance is associated with poor outcomes, obviously, because they may get cancers that are not diagnosed until an advanced stage. And therefore, comfort is really important. Many women with Lynch syndrome will have had a hysterectomy as part of their treatment for endometrial cancer or women with Lynch syndrome are offered a preventative hysterectomy around the age of 40 to prevent uh, endometrial cancer. Hysterectomy is associated with uh, greater discomfort during colonoscopy. So we have to try and do our utmost, to try and manage patient comfort and it's a a particular issue with this uh, patient
0: population. Thank you, that's really helpful. Is there any role for upper GI endoscopic surveillance in patients with Lynch syndrome?
1: It's not currently recommended in the UK that people routinely have an OGD. However, it's an interesting area. Um, The issue is whether or not we can identify precursors and if we remove these precursors, will it have an impact on patient outcomes? Now, what what we know is that in reported series of upper GI surveillance, the vast majority of precursors are H. pylori-associated and it's likely that if a patient doesn't have H. pylori, that they're unlikely to develop any of the precursors that have been reported in the series. We recommend that people with Lynch syndrome have H. pylori testing and eradication where appropriate. We know from, there's a paper in the New England Journal from a couple of years ago that demonstrated that if you have a family history of gastric cancer and you have H. pylori testing and eradication, your lifetime risk of gastric cancer is reduced by 55%. So there's some role there, although we don't know that the the kind of biological pathway associated with faulty mismatch repair is how it's related to the H. pylori-related gastric cancer um, biological pathway. However, it's the one thing that we know is associated with a reduction in gastric cancer risk, whereas it's not clear necessarily that upper GI surveillance is. I think that we may consider looking at particularly high-risk genotypes, so those with MSH2 and MLH1 have a higher risk of gastric cancer than, than others, but at the moment it's still not currently recommended.
0: Thank you. What other non-GI interventions might be offered to a patient diagnosed with Lynch syndrome?
1: There are a whole range of, of opportunities here uh, to try and help reduce cancer risk and also to manage cancer differently when people are diagnosed with Lynch syndrome. So, uh, as I mentioned uh, briefly earlier, women are offered a prophylactic hysterectomy and bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy around the age of forty. In the vast majority of cases. And Obviously, it needs to be counseled about the risks and benefits of this because the, although you know you, women can undergo hysteroscopy and whatnot, there's no evidence that surveillance of the gynecological tract is effective, and therefore, prophylactic surgery is the preferred option. And that's probably the most important other intervention that we haven't mentioned apart from aspirin. Aspirin, also very important, something that we as gastroenterologists will obviously have a handle on. There was a trial uh, mostly performed in. In people with Lynch syndrome in the UK who have Lynch syndrome, 500 people with Lynch were offered aspirin, 500 placebo. In the aspirin arm, there were half as many cancers after 10 years of follow-up. And that um, 50% reduction in long-term colorectal cancer risk has been demonstrated to be sustained for two decades. So we now recommend that people with Lynch syndrome have aspirin every day for at least two years and up to five years. Um, After five years there may be no additional benefits so we suggest that people can stop taking it after five years but they must take it for at least two years Uh, and this will reduce the long-term colorectal cancer risk. There may be some benefit with the modification of risk of other cancers and I think you know there are other things that need to be considered. Although there are limited surveillance options the risk of other cancers is increased, although not to the extent of gynaecological or colorectal cancer. And uh, people with Lynch syndrome need to have a lower threshold for investigation. They need to be told they should be vigilant for any changes. They can get skin cancers, for example. If they do develop any skin lesions, we advise them to ask the GP with a, you know, a lower threshold than perhaps they might normally consider going to the GP about. And um, these are probably the most important things. Now, when it comes to cancer diagnosis, some of the new immunotherapies, which are now NICE approved, can have transformative effects on patient outcomes. Um, we have you know, a number of patients who have been treated with checkpoint inhibitor immunotherapy where the cancer has literally disappeared. And you know, I have a patient who was sent home in best supportive care whose daughter arranged for the, for the patient to see a specialist oncologist who, after commencing immunotherapy, had complete clinical response. And there are many examples like that. And I think that if, some, if we're sitting in, a, in a, an MDT and someone has a Lynch syndrome, or they have a mismatch of deficient tumour, we're not even sure they have Lynch syndrome, it's always important to remember, this is a patient who perhaps should be considered for checkpoint inhibitor immunotherapy.
0: Really interesting. Thank you. You've mentioned the potential benefit of checkpoint inhibitor therapy. But are there any other considerations specifically for Lynch syndrome patients if they develop a colorectal cancer?
1: Yes, so um, we published a meta-analysis uh, a few years ago, demonstrated that if you have, for example, if you're diagnosed with a cecal tumour and you have a standard uh, surgical approach, which is a limited right hemicolectomy, after a period of uh, approximately a decade of follow-up, there's about a one in four or one in five chance that you'll get another cancer. So if you're a 30-year-old with a cecal cancer and you have a right hemi, by the time you're 40, there's quite a considerable risk that you'll have another colorectal cancer in your remaining colon or rectum. So for high-risk genotypes, which is uh, genotypes MLH1 and MSH2, we suggest that surgeons at least consider a more extensive operation. For example, either an extended right hemicolectomy or or a subtotal colectomy. Uh, now, this needs to be weighed up, uh, balanced with other factors such as the patient age, the patient wishes, whether they have comorbidities. You know, you would treat a 30 year old probably quite differently from a 70 year old, where you're more likely to go f- up for a more standard approach to surgical management. But for a 30 year old, you, m- you may be s- uh, suggesting look, you, you're a 30 year old with MLH1, you've had a cecal cancer you may be better off with a, a, a subtotal colectomy because that, we know that um, in the rectum, the long-term risk of a second cancer is actually lower. The, you know, the predominant risk is in the colon. And if you remove the, the large part of the colon, we normally opt for an oleodistal sigmoid anastomosis rather than ileorectal anastomosis with subtotal colectomy. Then um, this can help to reduce the long-term risk of cancer. But it needs to be nuanced and, and you know discussed with the patient in the context of patient-specific factors.
0: Can you tell us a bit about what's in the current research pipeline for patients with Lynch syndrome?
1: Well, this is a fertile area. Um, There's a a lot going on. And um, one of the things that people with Lynch syndrome are are really, really excited by, and I think as clinicians, we're we're probably a little bit more realistic about what can be achieved here. But there's already been a vaccine trial in in patients with Lynch syndrome. One of the interesting biological features of tumours in Lynch syndrome is because of the faulty mismatch repair the tumours produce um, epitopes which activate the immune system in a unique way they're called frame shift peptides um, and these um, antigens often you see a a tumour which is associated with Lynch syndrome with uh, lymphocytic infiltrate because of how the the tumour is activated this lymphocytic infiltrate is associated with a better prognosis. Stage by stage, people with Lynch have a better outcome in terms of their long term survival compared to people who don't have Lynch syndrome because of how the immune system is activated. We're actually collaborating with a group in Germany who've trialled this vaccine in 29 patients, and uh, it's obviously a phase one study. Um, the antigens that are produced um, in the colon of people with Lynch syndrome have been isolated and um, have been incorporated into a vaccine vector. There's also a group developing a vaccine at MD Anderson in Texas. You know, it would be fantastic if you could obviously offer people with Lynch syndrome a vaccine that would help to prevent colorectal and maybe other cancers as well. Um, and you know, I, I expect that it will be, you know, the next kind of iteration of this vaccine will be you know, offered in a clinical trial in the next few years.
0: That sounds really exciting. Could I ask you to finish by highlighting for us the main takeaway points for the general gastroenterologist when seeing patients with suspected Lynch syndrome? As
1: gastroenterologists, we are the people who are probably most frequently going to come in contact with someone with Lynch syndrome, especially after diagnosis, of course, because they have a colonoscopy every two years and they probably have no other regular clinician contact to speak of. And therefore, we're in a good position to offer optimal care for people with Lynch syndrome. Obviously, we can discuss whether someone with Lynch syndrome should have what they should do about H. pylori testing and eradication. We can advise their GPs to arrange this. Of course, uh, there's a, a an aspirin decision aid that we developed with NICE once the NICE guidelines came out a couple of years ago, um, which you you know if you Google online is easily you can easily find it. Um, this helps to have a discussion between a patient and their GP about whether the aspirin could be prescribed but you can provide this to a patient when they attend for their colonoscopy advise them that they should consider taking aspirin you know there are nuances that i've outlined in the frontline gastroenterology paper uh, that are probably worth reflecting on but we're we're in a unique situation and we also sit on the on the colorectal cancer mdt's so i don't think that there's any other clinician who's probably better placed than us as gastroenterologists to try and help coordinate the care of people with syndrome over their lifetime
0: Thank you. Well, all that remains for me to say is thank you very much for taking the time today to record this podcast and to share your expertise with our frontline gastroenterology listeners. And congratulations once again on the publication of your excellent review in frontline gastroenterology. Thank you.